Welcome to The Future Strategist. Today, my guest is James Barrett. He is the author of Our Final Invention, Artificial Intelligence and the End of the Human Era, which was published in 2013. Hello, James. Hello there, Jim. Good to be here. Um, so what's your background? Um, I'm a documentary filmmaker for, I guess, 25 years. Um, I came into that from writing, so uh, I, but mostly I've, I've done a lot of films for National Geographic, for public television, for Discovery. I've got one uh, I'm doing for PBS right now about zoonotic diseases. Um, and how did you get interested in AI? Uh, a long time ago, I made a film about AI. Actually, it was in 1999. And I interviewed Ray Kurzweil, Rodney Brooks, and Arthur C. Clarke when he was still alive. And Kurzweil and Clarke were both very were rosy optimists about the future coming when we'll share the planet with smarter than human machines. Clark, not so much. He said, um, we, we, we humans steer the future not because we're the fastest creature or the strongest creature, but because we're the most intelligent. And when we share the planet with something more intelligent than we are, they will steer the future. And that was the first negative word I'd heard. And I've been a giant fan of AI, as I still am. Um, but that festered. That idea festered. And uh, as I... As I got to know more about AI, I also asked AI developers the question, um, what will happen when most of the decisions involving our lives are made by machines? Will it be a handover or a takeover? And they always had, they always had very interesting answers. They were all, uh, or many of them, I would say, were, were privately concerned and were thinking about that themselves, but they would more or less dismiss it because there were uh, bills to pay. Um, there were there were interesting projects to work on. You know, AI in 2000 was nothing like AI now. AI was still in one of its winters. So, uh, and then I, you know, I just that's it went from there. That's that's really interesting. So just to reiterate, you're saying you, you talk to a lot of people in the AI community, people who are actually coding, you know, attempts at building artificial intelligence. Yeah. And you're saying that even though you know they're working at their jobs, they they weren't releasing you know, press statements saying this is dangerous. When they talked to you, they were still scared for the future. Well, you know, I had, I had a standard question I would ask everybody, and it was this. Do you think in 100 years, most of the decisions involving our lives, most of the critical decisions will be made by machines? And uh, almost 100% of them said yes. And I said, well, it'd be a handover or a takeover. And then, they, then, they, then they'd, we'd talk about that. And a lot of them were saying, well, you know, we seem to be on this trajectory that seems to be, uh, you know, this is a very... Uh, wonderful technology. There's a huge economic win pushing its development. I mean, the, the 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 money that's coming to this right now is is astounding, and it was uh, it was starting to ramp up when I started um, dealing with this these, these subjects. And then they then they invariably would uh, say yes, I, I'm concerned about the future. But nobody was, you know, I, I, in my book, our final invention, I call it the two minute problem, where I. I'd go to a conference, and in the last two minutes, someone would start talking about the, the downsides of AI. And they wouldn't just talk about in the far-off future when we share the planet with smarter than human machines. They talk about things like the NSA. Uh, you know, the NSA dove into the giant web of data and metadata going through the internet, the trunk lines of Yahoo and Google. They tapped into them. They, down, they stole all this data. And then they were able to pull out your phone book and mine, and they were able to do that because of data mining software, advanced AI. Um, there's, so they, they talked about things that bother them now that were happening in contemporary time, and things that they were working on that they knew 
Like I just I just just read an article about a uh, a um, drone. Now there's you know as you know there's a big debate going on right now about creating autonomous drones and battlefield robots, and these are machines that kill without a human in the loop. I just read an article about using evolutionary algorithms to, to uh, create a drone that is out fighting um, the best professionals in these in in battle uh, air battle simulations. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, uh, yeah, I read that too. Yeah, um, one of the best pilots was beaten by a, a, an AI program that wasn't even running on a lot of hardware. No, it was running on a PC. And here's the here's the part about the interesting thing about that. I, in my book, I talk about evolutionary algorithms because they're black box systems. A black box system, evolutionary algorithms is one. Neural networks is another. They're systems in which we know you know what the inputs are, you know what data you're putting in, and you know what the, what outputs are, you know what you're getting, but you don't know what's going on in between in any kind of high resolution sense. They're black box, you can't see what's going on inside. Um, we're using a lot of black box systems in very sensitive software like this this battle, uh, like this battle drone. And that's a problem because you can't you can't be utterly sure that, they are, that these systems are secure or that they're gonna do exactly what you anticipate. And as, that's, as you use these techniques, these techniques are, they're somewhat scary in autonomous, you know, on the road towards autonomous drones, these techniques, but they're very scary when you think about cognitive architectures that might be controlling, um, you know, giant factories, uh, you know, missile silos, big sensitive, uh, big sensitive data, data piles. So, and I, I talk about the whole black box phenomenon in, in our final invention. Is it a lot easier to um, write programs that use this black box technology? It's not easier. It's it's uh, it's more rewarding right now. I mean, neural, you know, deep learning, artificial neural networks, which have been around since the '60s, but right now, because of big data, because of faster processors, and because of better techniques, um, you know what's happening with with deep learning. Deep learning's it's calling the tune right now. That's a black box system. Uh, it's it, they're extremely powerful, but if you're going to make something that's utterly safe, you're not going to use a black box system. Yeah. So there's there's a tension between uh, techniques and and security. I think a lot of this gets down to, you know, how narrow a target is friendliness to get. If we do have an AI that's say conscious, whatever that means, will it almost certainly be friendly unless we make a big mistake, or will it almost certainly be unfriendly unless we get it exactly right? And if it's the latter, and we're using black box um, technology, yeah. we have almost no hope. You know, the, the space of possible, I don't like to use the word term conscious because it's so, it's so fraught with, with different definitions. And yeah, I agree. It's, it's very hard to understand. But I, I, like, I, I do think about, you know, machines that are as smart or smarter in a general sense than humans. But I think um, when you think about creating those, uh, the space of minds that could be created, the space of brains, that space is pretty big. You know, there's a lot of different ways this could come out. However, um, friendliness is extremely narrow and extremely precise. Trying to program in uh, things that are good for, you know, outcomes that are good for humans is extremely difficult. People that are trying to, you know, the Machine Intelligence Research Institute has been thinking about how to create friendly AI since around 2003. And everyone who, who talks about the subject of friendly AI realizes that it's extremely hard to uh, code uh, human-centric behaviors into machines. 
Um, for example, how do you protect human? If you wanted to protect a machine to protect human life, well, you and I might get in a debate right now about when human life begins. It's certainly a big debate in our country, and it's a big debate around the world. Also, it's there around the world. Different uh, women and children are frequently not treated like humans. So a whole definition of what constitutes human life is really different from place to place. It's also different over time. You know, there was a time in our country when you could own a human. Uh, there, there are plenty of places right now where you can still own a human. So coding that into a machine, how to protect a human, is, is turns out to be a lot harder. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Try to code in any, any sort of value um, it's, it's just extremely hard. So, to answer your question, it's a lot more likely we'll create something that's simply a, uh, that's got no more sense of friendliness than a toaster. Mm -hmm. And yeah, a toaster would, would kill you without worrying about it, just because it's, it doesn't make sense to worry about it in the same way. Right. Super intelligent AI, just, you know, thinking, well, look, I'm killing a lot of humans, there's just no reason why that should be a good or bad thing. If it slightly advances one of its objectives, that's what it will do. Exactly. And, you know, this is why people, you know, it's like uh, that one of the heads of Google, um, Eric Horvitz, uh, keeps coming out and saying, "Oh, there's nothing to worry about with with AI," but he doesn't have he doesn't have he doesn't propose any answers to these problems. He thinks these problems are far down the road, but he probably understands on some level um, that this we're, we're in a window right now when you have we have to we we need to imbue artificial intelligence development with ethical considerations. This window won't be open forever. Mm -hmm. and, and it certainly will be too late when we're creating uh, cognitive architectures that are as smart as humans. Yeah. Of course, there's the possibility that it's too late now, that if we knew everything, that we would realize <laughs> it's going to be so much easier to develop a super intelligent AI than it is going to be to put friendliness in it, that yeah. we're, we're doomed unless you know society collapses and we stop all technological progress. Well, that's, you know, that's, <laughs> it, I'm only laughing because it's like, you know, the way you laugh nervously when you're standing on a cliff. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that, I don't, I, don't, I don't like to concede that it's too late because then it becomes a, a just a, you know, a very, very dark uh, conversation. Well, it might not be, but. <laughs> yeah, but no, I've talked to people who, who, who think, you know, if you look at our relationship with technology, our innovation runs so far ahead of our stewardship. You know, I'm from West Virginia, where the uh, the, um, they, the the most popular epitaph on gravestones is, you know, what is, is hey, watch this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, last words. You know, uh, that's the human race. We 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 like to develop things and then clean up later. Union Carbide thought it was a good idea to develop uh, chemical plants in. Uh, in highly dense, densely populated areas, and they killed 15,000 people in Bhopal, India. Um, we we uh, we have a very dangerous relationship with nuclear fission. That's the power behind nuclear power plants and nuclear weapons. We have a very dangerous relationship that's still dangerous. We don't know how to dispose of the waste. We don't know how much radiation is being released at Fukushima. We know that uh, the the cancer uh, deaths in from Chernobyl are now entering their second generation. So it, fission has an overall, and, you know, we held a gun to our own heads for 50 years with the, with the nuclear arms race. So unfortunately, I think AI is a more sensitive technology than fission, and we have a really bad relationship with, uh, with, with sensitive technology. Yeah, I mean, that, that certainly is true. If you look, we still have, you know, missiles with hydrogen bombs on them pointed at our various cities. That's yeah. from a global perspective, that's so utterly insane. 
And we still yeah. have it now. I mean, we don't really have that many fundamental disagreements with Russia. But yeah. yet both countries are still, you know, poised to destroy the other within a half an hour. So we're there's something collectively crazy about what's going on with our species and technology. Yeah, exactly, exactly. If you had to, if you had to rank species and you had five species, that the, the one that was pointing weapons at, at, at itself all the time would probably be the one you wouldn't want to trust with something <laughs> sensitive yeah. or, or a very tough problem. And look at our relationship with guns. I mean, we are we are um, we are absolutely nutso about about putting really really dangerous weapons into the hands of, of anyone who wants one. So you know, so so that's the. In, in that context, introduce artificial intelligence, which is, you know, at advanced levels, is the ability to uh, create weapons, the ability to invent weapons. It's the technology that creates technology. Mm -hmm. can't, te technologies don't get more sensitive than that. Yeah. Although the counter argument would be we're so messed up, we, our only hope of survival might be to create friendly AI because that can solve all of our other problems. So there's I kind think, of a race. Yeah. We're eventually going to destroy ourselves unless we get friendly AI. Well, if, even if we get friendly AI, you know, there'll be, um, that's like a, a, that's like an appeal to religion. That's like saying, well, if God were here, we, he could straighten all this out, you know? And I think that if we have to wait to create a super intelligence to straighten out, to straighten out these problems, then, you know, we've waited too long. Mm -hmm. Uh, we don't know what a super intelligence, you know, it's, Ben Gertzel is a really accomplished artificial intelligence programmer and he's trying to create AGI or artificial general intelligence, and he has this idea that's really profound and interesting that we should create super intelligence as fast as we can, because if we create nanotechnology first, then when super intelligence comes about, nanotechnology will already have been developed, and that will be the most awesome and awesomely frightening weapon that 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 super intelligence could use against us. So we need to create it in this relatively primitive environment rather than waiting uh, until we've got all these other dangerous things around. Yeah, that could be. What really scares me is that all the people in the AI field, they might be acting rationally to pursue the field, even if they're individually afraid, because everyone will say, well, you know, I can't make that much of a difference. My participating or not won't really matter, but by participating, I can become rich. So we're yeah. sort of in this giant prisoner's dilemma where everyone can be afraid, but everyone can still act rationally saying, you know what, if I was somehow God Emperor of Earth, I'd stop this research, but I'm not, no one's in a position to, so I should just partake in the fun while I can, recognizing yeah. maybe I'm increasing the risks of our species destruction by one in a million, but that's a really small number. I was talking with um, a really, really great scientist, Rich, Rick, Richard Rick Granger at uh, Dartmouth Brain Lab, and he was saying essentially the same thing. Um, that you know, if you're if you're a professor trying to get tenure, or you're a in a startup trying to get uh, some some capital, or you're uh, you're writing a grant, it's very very hard to stop and say you know I, I'm not sure if I should uh, proceed with this particular line of line of inquiry. Um, a lot of a lot a lot of money. Another thing I asked people is where's your money coming from? A lot of money comes from the Department of Defense. A lot of money comes from DARPA, Defense, you know, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, um, and they're not making they're not making toys; they're making weapons. So, you know, it's not. I think it's unfair to put too much pressure on AI developers, but they have to know that you know, AI is not some. It's not as simple as it's not as simple as making widgets. 
Well, it's not, yeah, it's not ethically uh, in the clear. Yeah, I mean, a bigger issue is if we do create unfriendly AI, it might just won't just kill everyone on Earth, but it could sort of expand throughout the universe and kill everything <laughs> else. So we're we're doing a yeah. lot more damage than just to our own planet. Well, you know, I, there's different ways to calculate that. You know, I, I talked if you talk to a strict strict uh, like Benthamite utilitarian is is then uh, you know we're not just killing ourselves but future generations. Mm -hmm. You know that, that don't exist yet. So we're it's a real it's a super catastrophe, or we're creating uh, a, f a form of um, intelligence that can spread into the universe and be very just be very uh, consume a lot of resources, uh, want to protect itself from any kind of enemy. And yeah, you know that's that's that, I think that's definitely a possibility. That that I remember speaking with Michael Vassar at Miri years ago. And we were looking at the window of his of his. Uh, apartment in San Francisco, and I was, for the first time, I was thinking, you know, that's right, it doesn't stop with Earth. It, it, you know, if, if you create something that needs resources, it's going to go out and mine resources, and it doesn't even necessarily need to stop our solar system. Yeah, no, it, there's no reason it would if what it wanted is resources. Yeah. And, of course, you know, from the point of view of the universe, our taking an extra million years is nothing compared to getting it right. So I think the globally, the universal ethical thing is for us to go very slowly to get it right, but I think competitive pressures make that yeah. very difficult. Yeah, you know, and there's, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's this great, I mean, it's not a great answer, but you know, the Fermi paradox. Yes, yes. Why, you know, why don't we, why, with all these uh, Goldilocks planets that we're, that we know exist, you know, there are a billion stars in our galaxy, and there are probably, you know, planets around, and there are probably a billion galaxies. Why haven't we uh, found anything that's that's friendly? And it may be that uh, it may be that the filter is the development of advanced artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. that, although, you know, once, once although in that, that far, case, it would have to not expand. It would have to be AI that doesn't want to let you leave your solar system. Or we'd see evidence of other races having done that. Can you say that again? Well. If, if AI, you know, if the great filter can't just be AI destroys you and then expands out into the universe or else we would see evidence of that probably. Yeah, we'd see, uh, we'd see giant construction or we'd see, or see an invasion. But what, what you know, Seth Shostak from, uh, um, who's the group that listens for Alien Life? SETI. Oh, yeah, SETI, yeah. He, he proposes that, uh, that, that they, they go to cold places in the universe, that once an intelligence reaches a certain size and in, in intelligence, it goes to cold places where, it can, where its processors can be cooled. <laughs> Presuming, of course, that, that super intelligent machines will still use processors to heat up. That, that's but still that's, an interesting idea. That seems odd. I mean, I'm sure they'll go there, but why won't they also go everywhere else? There's, you know, assuming it has this nano technology, it would be easy for it to expand everywhere. Yeah, you, you'd assume that, but maybe there's, you know, maybe there's some, some, you know, level of intelligence or experience that we can't see from here, that we, that our intelligence is too, too small to understand. You know, maybe they have, maybe they, maybe they have invaded us. Maybe they, it's a, it's a, uh, an invasion that we're unaware of. And I'm not talking about being kidnapped by aliens. I'm talking about just, you know, they, they could, they could be in the form of molecules. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, that's certainly possible, but that just seems to me very unlikely because then what's optimal for them is to leave us alone. And it would take a very weird set of preferences to say the best thing I can do is to leave these people alone rather than, you know, destroy them or help them or give them our religion. Well, you know, that's that I think that's I think that's 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 I think that's right generally, but I, 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 the, the thing is, we assume, if we assume we know what superintelligence wants or does, it's a little bit risky. I, I, I assume, because I was given, you know, we're given a good tool for trying to understand what superintelligence would do, and I think that's Steve Omohundro's work, where he talks about the basic drives of AI. And I think that's a good tool, but I also think that there's probably a lot about their motivations that we won't be able to understand. Just like there's a lot about our motivations that a mouse can't understand. Yeah, no, yeah. that that's certainly true. Although another, I mean, Hunter's paper is is fantastic. But an, another thing we understand is sort of our, um, Darwinian drives. So yeah. if we assume that evolution will would shape, you know, intelligence on any planet where it arises, and one of the basic evolutionary drives is to reproduce and to expand, and you hmm. you you do take over every environment you possibly can. So you'd think if life was common, there'd be some groups that would want to do that and would use AI and nanotech to help them. Yeah, but that's biological evolution. And I'm not sure that, that machines are going to inherit or inherit the drives of biological evolution. Um, I don't know if I agree with that. I think, I mean, evolution has to apply to anything pretty much. Really? If you, well, if you imagine there's AI, you know, the speed of light is a limit. So you can't have like a singleton. You can't have a single intelligence then, you know, the subsection of the AI that says, hey, I'd like to make more copies of myself in this other section, that subsection will make more copies of itself. And so eventually kind of the math of evolution will would even push AI to say, you know, the, the kind that survives is I, I want to make as many copies of myself as I possibly can. And that's my goal. And that means it would yeah. be here. I can see in a rational agent economic theory sense why a, an AI would want to get more resources. I'm not sure that equa that equals, uh, but I can't see I can't see a a them following, you know, uh, uh, Darwinian principles of evolution, and B I I can't see them uh, I can't I can't I don't know why they want to multiply. I think that's different from gathering resources or becoming more intelligent. I can see why they want to become more intelligent. Well, the AIs that did want to multiply, there would be more copies of them. And so assuming there's a value, you get more resources, the more copies of yourself you have, those AIs would have the advantage. Uh, not necessarily. Not if there was a, a singleton who just decided he was going to be the only AI. Um, I think if they can overcome the speed of light problem and have instantaneous communications, I could agree with you. But if that's not possible, then you really can't right. have a singleton. You'll have different agents in different areas making decisions. It'll get different data, so their minds will probably change a little bit. I mean, if there's something like hyperspace, this all goes away. But yeah, but you, you, I think you'd still have the uh, the availability of competing intelligences in an ecology of intelligences that would lit, that could possibly limit the the unimpeded expansion of one of them. Yeah, so but... I, I don't I don't know if if superintelligence exists in the universe. I think your conclusion is that if superintelligence exists in the universe, we'd have to be aware of it because one of them would want to expand forever, but I don't, I don't think that's necessarily so. Um, I mean, I agree it's not necessarily so. And I mean, the Fermi paradox is so strange that any answer <laughs> we come up with is going to sound wrong, or, or at least the person who 
comes up with a good answer, we'll, we'll be. Well, that's like you know, I, that's what I, I was just at a conference, and and, and I, 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 lo I love to think about the speculation, but I like to go back. You know, when I was developing this book and talking to AI makers, and also talking to people who are interested in AI risk, not many people were thinking about the short term, um, like jobs. And so I like to I like to I like to speculate about you know what's going to happen in in twenty or fifty years, but I also like to come back to what's happening now, with with you know the terrific economic wind that's pushing you know, um, it was uh, McKinsey and Company that said by twenty twenty five, artificial intelligence and robotics would be have between ten and twenty five, would be worth ten between ten and twenty five trillion dollars in value. Oh. And right now, or since 2009, there's been $15 billion of investment in AI. And the number, that's total, and the, but the number roughly doubles, not in a, in a Moore's Law sense, but it roughly doubles each year. So um, the, 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 the end game of that is that we're going to have a lot, of, a lot of kinds of AIs, that AI will be ubiquitous. Um, Kevin Kelly said everything that's, ele everything that's electric Will be cognitized, which makes total sense. You know, everything that's electric will be given some some level of intelligence, mm -hmm. and and so uh, what that's going to add up to is a gigantic loss of jobs, a lot of a lot of dislocation in the economy, and that's sort of your that's your yeah. your specialty. What's going to happen with um, and you know, and what jobs are going to be safe? Uh, well, it, it's really hard to know because you can imagine that almost any job or pretty much any job could be eliminated by AI. So it depends on how the technology develops. I mean, we could get AI that's very good at writing and, you know, destroys jobs of journalists. We could get AI that figures out the hand-eye coordination thing and destroys the jobs of journalists. What I've heard is that the last job that will be destroyed are advanced <laughs> computer programmers. Because once AI can do advanced computer programming, it can quickly upgrade its own intelligence. Yeah, right. That's uh, that's the that's the intelligence explosion. That's that's uh, IJ good. Um, yeah, but I, you know, I think it's 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 interesting how uh, the hard problems, like Steve Wozniak, when the, the co-founder of Apple, said, uh, you know, the hard problems are easy and the easy problems are hard. Create a robot that can go inside. Call it called the coffee. I think it was the coffee machine test. We can make. We've made machines that are better than us at Jeopardy and chess, and can you know beat us at Go, and can navigate better than us, and do theorem proving better than us. But we can't make one that can make coffee better than us. Yeah. And so maybe you know it's that the combination. He's Wozniak proposed a test that's his version of the Turing test, in which a robot is as good as a human when it can go into any house and using whatever machines are available make coffee. Mm -hmm. So. That's, you know, I think that's, I think, you know, paradoxically, the safest jobs are going to be the ones that are, that, that require a combination of thinking and improvisation and manual work. Yeah, I think that certainly could be true. I think we overestimate the difference in intelligence between us and chimpanzees. I mean, it took evolution a long time to get to chimp level intelligence. But the extra stuff we have, that might not be that hard, you know, like we can obviously play chess vastly better than a chimp could. But that, yeah. that part isn't that hard to put into a computer while getting a chimp's hand-eye coordination is yeah. really tough. Yeah, good point. That's right. That's right. So, 
But uh, we, just need, we need to watch out for smarter chimps. Yes, yes. But I'm actually very optimistic about the economic situation until the AI destroys us, as long as it's our friends. I mean, I think, you know, most people don't like their jobs. And if we've got robots doing our jobs, that's going to be great for most people. I mean, just keep the same level of transfer payments the governments make as a percent of the economy. And if we've got robots doing a lot of work, yeah, there'll be super rich people, but even poor Americans will be much better off than we are now. Is that, is that, is that really true? I mean, I, to restate what you just said, uh, for example, there's 5 million professional drivers in the United States. Mm -hmm. Within five years, uh, I think it was um, McKinsey and Company suggested most of those will be unemployed. And these are taxi drivers, delivery men, delivery drivers, truck drivers. What, in what sense is their life going to be better? Well, I mean, some of them will have worse lives, but if we make it, if we eliminate human drivers, that means it's cheaper for Walmart and, you know, for all this, for everybody to be transporting things using AI drivers, which is, that's going to lower the marginal cost of Walmart that's going to save families a lot of money. So families will be spending more money going out to restaurants and their, their paychecks will go farther and this will itself create more jobs. I think, I, 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 I sort of think that would be the case if there were enough people, you know, I, th I think it's true that, you know, MIT came out with a, uh, the number 45% of our jobs will be replaced within the next 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we can, there's, there's going to be a top end to how many restaurants there are and there's going to be, I'm not, I'm not sure how these people are going to afford the restaurants unless you know all the prices of restaurants come down to nothing, and and labor or wage stays safe, more or less stable. Well, and all these people who are put out of work find other work. I don't know. You know, back in the old days when a new technology came along, it usually hit a sector of the economy. Um, this, you know, because artificial intelligence is about intelligence, and also helps makes good robots, I'm not sure there's any part of the economy that's going to be really off limits. So it's a general unemployment, not a, not a sector unemployment. No, I, I agree. But if the AI stays friendly, I mean, if we have robots doing all human jobs, that means that the amount of the total amount of wealth we're producing now, it'll be at least as big, but in a future where humans don't have to work. And but so that's gonna, a good gonna, thing. Who, but who's going to pay for that? Who's, well, gonna, who, who's gonna keep them alive? Okay, I mean, if if people are getting money somehow, right, then they're fine. If they're not getting the money, then we can just hire each other. I mean, if, if you know, robots, if I can't afford to hire a robot barber, then I'll hire a human barber. And if that, you know, that barber can't afford to have his daughter go to a college taught by a, a computer professor, then the barber can hire me. So the really, it can only really work out that we're all getting these goods and services, because if we're not, we can, a group of us can just say, well, the heck with the computers, we can't afford their prices, we'll just hire each other and do what we're doing before. Yeah, interesting, interesting. I think that, that's, that's sort of how, that's the equilibrium over the next hundred years or so, right? Because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about how, you know, how does the government get enough money, like the whole idea of a guaranteed, minimum, guaranteed uh, minimum wage, not minimum wage, but a guaranteed wage. Yes, yes. Um, really relies on, you know, uh, a lot of companies are making money. Um, people are out of work, so but they're getting from the government a a wage that's livable. And then, uh, but 
and the government's presumably getting that from revenue, and part of that revenue is from the companies that are making so much money in artificial intelligence and robotics, right? Except that Google doesn't pay taxes. Google um, pays taxes in Ireland where they don't charge for taxes. No, I mean, this is dead serious. Well, uh, look, look at where Apple pays taxes, but Apple pays taxes in Ireland where they don't charge corporate taxes. I mean, I'm going to be a bit uh, economic geeky here. Um, I think Google does pay taxes. They don't pay certain types of taxes, but you know, Google pays wages to a lot of Americans, and those Americans pay taxes on those wages. Google yeah, pays yeah. dividends. So it's they're not paying you know corporate taxes, but they they are paying effectively. The government is getting a lot of money off of Google, and that's what, but, what really matters. Are they, are they getting a lot of money off of Apple? I mean, there's 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 so few Apple uh, you know except for retail. There's just not many Apple employees. Uh, well, are, but, are they are they are they really making that much money off the off the you know Mountain View is not that big. There aren't that many Google employees. Uh, a lot of people are paying money from. Um, on capital gains, on the amount of money, profit they've made from investing in Apple. When you buy an iPhone, you pay sales tax. They have yeah, I can, I can, I can, I can, yeah, I can see retail. I can see their tax contribution, but I, you know, I, I don't. I'm not sure if the rest of it that what you mentioned is is a big enough uh, contribution commensurate with how much dislocation uh, this is going to cause in the economy. I mean, also on a deeper level, I mean, one of the you know people work in order to buy stuff. So, you know, one of when essentially Google taxes like a college professor, I mean, sorry, when the government taxes me on my wages, part of the reason I'm working is so I can buy iPhones and apps. So yeah. effectively, they are taxing Apple. You know, yeah, but, that's, but if you look at how, how much you spend on iPhones and apps, it's probably a pretty small percentage of your, you know, what you put out there. Yeah. You know, I, in the last year, I bought an iPhone and I bought a Mac, or I had my Mac upgraded, so I spent about a thousand dollars on computers so that's not i'm still not hearing the the cash register that's going to pay for all these people who are getting unemployed well and of course the government could always change how it taxes people right yeah it's i think i think we're ready for some really serious challenges no we are but and, I, mean, and, and I wish i wish i wish the companies like like google and apple were showing more stewardship themselves uh being better sort of corporate citizens uh, yeah, although it's again in a market economy, it's hard for them, I think, to do that. They'll lose out to companies that are more competitive if they start putting things ahead ahead of profits. I don't know. I, I you know, I, things ahead of profits. I'm not sure that's what, what I mean. I'm, I'm just, you know, I mean, uh, being better citizens, paying more taxes, but not, you know, not putting taxes ahead of profits, but but paying taxes to countries in which they're having the biggest impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a fair. You know, that, that would be fair. Okay. Uh, you mentioned before the NSA is using um, AI. How is the NSA using artificial intelligence? Oh, they use a lot of artificial intelligence. They're using it for data, data mining, for one. You know, the NSA is, has a $50 billion a year black budget. That means that nobody gets to look at their budget except some, some judges and some congressmen who probably aren't that technically astute. So they get to spend $50 billion a year. Um, they've been doing, you know, they, uh, Snowden, Edward Snowden, mm-hmm. revealed that the NSA has been spying on us for a long time, and the way they're doing that is very, it's very tricky. Uh, by law, the NSA is not supposed to spy on American citizens, so they couldn't tap into the internet here. They tapped into the internet abroad, into uh, the 
the transmission lines of Google and Yahoo. Uh, they also went to Google and Yahoo and Apple and a whole lot of other people with, with basically secret orders for, for uh, these companies to give them, and AT&T for these companies to give them their metadata and their actual data. So once they had all that data, they couldn't do anything with it unless they had really good data mining software. And they, they did this under the, under the, under the, um, the guise of national security. But it turns out that, that the number of like terrorists they actually tracked down were virtually nil with these techniques. So what are they doing with all the information? What they're doing is they're 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 putting together uh, they're sharing it's, it, this is all this is all public record. They share the information with immigration. They've shared this information with the IRS. They've shared they've done share this spying information with uh, with government agencies. Um, a, a, who's the, the former head of the NSA started his own security company. Uh, so he's been he's been more or less profiting off um, off the techniques they were using at the NSA. So that's, you know, in this country, it used to be the case that if you wanted to get my phone, if you wanted to record my phone call or, or take my, or, or read my mail, you had to go to a judge and get a court order. That was to prevent, uh, you know, the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution uh, protects illegal search and seizure of property. And my phone call and my, my email, my mail is considered my, my personal property. They went around the Fourth Amendment as I said, by tapping into trunk lines overseas. And they basically, and, and by going to uh, corporations and demanding data. And that's, that's you know, in, in violation of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, that's a, that's a, that's something that, that's an abuse that we don't have to look far down the road for an AI abuse. There's one right now. Yeah, my guess is that, you know, privacy is dead in the near future. That there's so many cameras and microphones pointed at us, and then once we get better at processing big data, you know, a government that wants to know something about you will will know everything about you. I think that's true. I, th I, I'm, I, you know, the only part I, I wish that there were a way to monetize our data, <laughs> so so that we could sell it to the, to to the government and to corporations rather than just having to take it. Well, I guess that's sort of what Facebook does. They they give you the whatever the news feeds for free in return for right. a lot of information. Well, you know, I, uh, every time I buy something now, I get a, I get a poll from the company. So it's like, I'm, they don't need a market research company. They have all the people that buy things. And unless there's some giant incentive, I never do those polls because it's like, you know, why am I spending five minutes of my day doing market research for you? Mm -hmm. um, why am I giving you my data for free? I wish I could monetize it and charge you for it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's certainly true. Um, what are some of the, let me ask you a question. What are some of the ch challenges with AI and the economy coming up? Well, I think, I mean, I think the major challenge, I mean, my main worry is unfriendly AI. It, it would be... Which is kind of, that, which is a little bit down the road. Yeah, but even now, it would be sort of trying to stop the competitive pressures of people developing unfriendly AI. Yeah. I think we're, we're just sort of pushed towards that. We're in this giant prisoner's dilemma, and there's no one that that can stop us going along. But otherwise, I mean, I'm very optimistic. I think, although actually, I, I think one big challenge might be on sex spots. I think we're going to see robots that are more <laughs> attractive than humans. And I think this could, in some ways, destroy Western civilization. That if we, wow. if you look at what yeah. pornography is already doing, I mean, that's like, the, the internet is basically what email and pornography, that's if you, yeah. Um, and if you look what, what sex spots could do is it could destroy human relations because we could create these ideal three-dimensional things 
and then people will stop putting effort into trying to care about the other. Maybe planets. that's what's maybe that's what's happened on other planets is they've uh, they've stopped reproducing because they, they only have sex with robots. Yeah, well, if you look at what happened in Japan, apparently there's a lot of men in Japan who aren't really interested in having sex with actual women. And this really? Sort of what, with, with robots or with, or with porn? It's I think porn now, but I'm not really sure. Um, that's, but, that's, very, that's very interesting. That's very, that's very you know, porn, I, I, mean, I know that porn sort of led the uh, VHS mm -hmm. VCR revolution. And then porn was, you know, they've been one of the giant pushers of the internet growth. Definitely. Um, yeah, and sex bots will be one of the leading pushers of ro robotics. Oh man, that's so I can I, I can tell my son he has my my young son he has something to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's, it's going to be a while yet before he's interested in sex robots. Uh, yeah, my son's eleven, so I don't know how long it'll be. <laughs> it won't be long. Yeah. Um, I think a big problem with sex bots is it's going to hurt women more than men because if you assume, you know, most men are more interested in physical things while women wouldn't just want like a pretty robot. So you'll have a lot of men who basically drop out of the dating market while you won't have initially as many women. So the men that do stay in the dating market will have a lot better options. So I think sort yeah. of in terms of the market for dating is going to really turn in favor of the men, especially the men who aren't interested in sex bots, because there'll be you know far more women per men. It's, 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 we're getting very much into Ray Kurzweil territory. One of his books that had a big impact on me was The Age of Spiritual Machines. And he talks about um, having relationships with not so much robots, but sort of relationships, um, virtual reality relationships with other people. Mm. So he envisions that people will meet in virtual spaces and have uh, central experiences uh, because they'll have they'll have nanobots in their in their you know his take on virtual reality is to have the have it inside your body instead of outside your body mm -hmm. and uh, that you could have a real dynamite time with someone in a virtual world. That's true. Then that'll have a very interesting effect on land prices. I mean, one of the strange phenomenons in the world is that like the price of land in some areas like San Francisco or Manhattan is just you know hundreds or thousands of times higher than perfectly good land in other parts of the country. Yeah. And if suddenly we can, you know, use virtual reality to, to talk with people and interact with them in a well in a way that's just as meaningful as if we were next to them, then you'll see land prices in San Francisco and Manhattan, I think, collapse. Right, right, because you won't need any much land anymore. That reminds me of the book uh, Ready Player One, where oh. all the it's a really good science fiction book, Ready Player One. I think Spielberg is making it to a movie right now. And I'm, I'm happy to say I read it before I knew that. Um, someone recommended it to me. It's really good, but it takes place in a, in a dystopian world 20 or 30 years from now. And uh, people are having these wild adventures, but they're all virtual. They're all having them in these, uh, like this big game world that was set up by a genius and more or less given to the universe. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. You know, and, and then where these people physically live is really awful, but where they're living in the virtual world is really great. Yeah, and that actually, I mean, that's a very good way of dealing with the world's poor. I mean, if we have a billion people living in desperate poverty, and let's just, you know, assume rich people are never going to care enough to give them a lot of money, we might care enough to say, hey, we'll put a chip in your brain so you have a really happy life. Well, that's, there's a philosophical uh, problem called the experience machine. And it's like, would you, would you trade the life you have now for an infinitely better one? But in a, in, a, in a machine, and I, you know, uh, until you've had that experience, I'm not, it's hard. To, I think it's hard to, to really say. 
course, the, the, an argument is that we're, you know, we might already be living in a computer simulation. So yeah, I, I haven't then I, moved to the better simulation. That's easy. Yeah, I, I've got to, I've got to look into that. I know, uh, I know. Um, I think that was first out of Oxford, wasn't it? Was yeah, it, the uh, Nick Bostrom. Yeah, Nick Bostrom. Yeah, um, I, I need to read that because I have not read that paper. I heard some one of my Facebook friends. He used one of the virtual reality consoles for the first time, and he's like, "Oh yeah, this is definitely a simulation." Yeah. A virtual reality council. One of the virtual reality machines. Uh huh. And he, his comment was, "This is a simulation that you can know. You could sort of say, yeah, this is. You make this.' Well, no, you know what? I was at a, I was at a conference recently, and I tried on a headset. Uh, it was a co cooperation between uh, Oculus and Samsung, and they started with real a real world. They started with um, a trip down a river down the Mekong in Vietnam. But through a village, really, a village on the water, and it was so real. I mean, it was it was it was just it was VR, mm -hmm. and then then you were in a herd of elephants, and then you were in a herd of brontosauruses, or brontosauri, and it was really great. It was unbelievably vivid, and it didn't. I mean, because it was back to back with elephants in a jungle, the brontosaurus in a jungle were done so well that I, you know, one leans in and sniffs you. And it's it's a little weird. I mean, I, I did I was not I was it was it was some virtual reality sleight of hand, but I was convinced. Yeah, you know, this is a way of taking care of the unemployment problem. It might be that you know video games get so good that people don't want to work, and these video games have very low marginal costs. <laughs> so once you've developed them, it's really cheap to give copies to everybody. So we're not yeah. doing work. We're not consuming very many resources. We're kept alive by these robots. We're happy, and it doesn't have to be an unmeaningful existence. I mean, we could be reading poetry to each other, you know, while riding dinosaurs. Yeah, you know. So no, no, it sounds it's you know it's it's that it's that it's the it's the holodeck on uh, Star Trek. You know, yes, it's, uh, it's 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 wonderful sounding. I think, you know, what do we lose? What does humanity lose? Uh, I think you know what's so cool about artificial intelligence is because we're asking so many questions that are. You ask questions about psychology, and so many things go into AI that are, that are part of us. You know, psychology, ethics, um, reasoning, language. Uh, you know, perception. You know, changing a perception into a concept. You know, recognizing things. All those things are things we do that we're trying to recreate in machines. And this whole, you know, maybe the, maybe the end game or the end goal is to create these worlds that are so profoundly interesting. That they that will exchange them for the ones we live in. Yeah, and we also could afford to have a lot more humans living in this world. I mean, if you know, if we're all just in these tiny boxes connected to the internet, we we could add another trillion human beings. And if those human beings well, are living, no, there's a problem with feeding. You know, even in the next, there, there's a problem with feeding them between the seven, eight billion that, that exists now and the ten billion that will exist by 2050. There's a big, there's a big, uh, there's a big issue. Really, I thought things like CRISPR, you know, gene editing technologies are going to make it really easy for us to ramp up food production, you know, for the next, you know, 20, 30 years or so. It may be the case, but if we have the, if people have the attitude towards genetically modified foods that they do now, I mean, Europe has a virtual ban on GM foods. Oh, yeah. Well, it's one advantage of Brexit is that the European Union will get have less power to regulate wastelands. Yeah, yeah, Brexit, wow. Um, well... I'm afraid, I'm afraid I'm going to have to run along in a couple of minutes. Is there? Uh, okay. uh, 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 sure. Well, let me just ask you. As this has been this has been great. We should do it again. Oh, thank you. I'd like to, but 
as one of the few people interested in transhumanism that has real media experience, what advice would you give to people interested in, you know, AI and cryonics and these set of issues to how to communicate to the world outside of ourselves? Well, I, I like to, I like to, uh, I like to build a firewall between AI and chironics. I think chironics is, is just, just silly okay. for, for the foreseeable future. And there's a lot of things that are, you know, I'm not, I don't consider myself a transhuman. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not, I'm not interested in uh, turning into a machine or I'm interested in benefiting from machines, but the whole transhumanist thing, you know, it smacks of religion to me. Okay. Um, but but how, how do people get prepared? Is that the question? I mean, how do we communicate to the outside world? If, if we want to influence the world somehow, yeah. how do we better package our messages compared to the way we talk to each other? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think this is a conversation, this conversation about AI and about the future and employment. I think it's one we all have to join. So I would, I would urge people to read your book, Singularity Rising and mine, our final invention, to uh, get get some grounding in in AI and what the challenges ahead are. I think we, you know, it, it doesn't help any of us to go into this uh, this new era ignorant of its potentials and its challenges. So I would advise everyone to to get get uh, get educated about about artificial intelligence and some of these other technologies. Um, and then I think we everyone needs to look hard at their own job and see what they can do that's innovative and different that will protect them in the, in the you know through the digital revolution. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Well, thank you, Jim. I really enjoyed it. What, what, what a fun conversation. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, okay. goodbye. We'll see you again. Bye bye. Yeah.